0: 78644 is brought to you by Wella Foods. In kind sponsors are Printing Solutions, Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, The Rock House, Airbnb, Birdie House, Airbnb, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. When I find
1: they've gone crazy.
0: It's hard to believe, but we've done 29 episodes thus far and thought we'd look back at some of the highlights from the show. Of course, we can't cover as much as we'd like to. Nevertheless, we were able to compile several great moments from Season 1 for you on this episode. And we're gearing up for Season 2, which will be a little bit of a different format, including artisans that make things along with the continued music and art segments that we've been known for. And we're looking forward to getting Season 2 off and running. I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644 condition I don't know who you are We're going to start the episode off with a performance by Natalie Ribbons of her song Vampire Cowgirl
2: you who came barreling down rabbit with some talk of a gal who rides at night picking off the stock there you saw her for yourself of that you're sure i have never seen a man cry like that before she moved softly swaying grass whispered as she cut the herd like a piece of glass by the light of the moon blood upon the ground she had slain a longhorn ox nearly without sound I know you're just a woman you who came barreling down wild in the ice telling all of what you saw swearing they were no lies thought he had any fear since he went to war, but I have never seen a man cry like that before. Like a whip to hide, her gaze caught his own, rendered him a beast of prey, scared him to the bone. By the light of the moon, he came running home, sated by the long hordocks, ox, she let him
0: In episode two, we had Nicole Reyes and Richard Valdez, who formed Que Maison, on, and Nicole had her father come on and tell a fantastic true ghost story that happened here in Lockhart when he was a kid. And we're going to play that for you now.
3: It was on the 4th of July, I remember. We didn't have air conditioning. We would just sleep with the windows open. Uh, We had screen windows and screen doors, and everything was just left open and unlocked, so you could hear... Just different sounds at night from the neighbors. I was an an eight-year-old boy, and about two o'clock, just a little after two in the morning, I got woken up, and I looked outside, and I heard one of my dogs that was cowering had his tail between his legs and ran under the house. And then all of a sudden, I heard this wail. And it was a very, very phantasmal whale. Of course, we had heard from past legends about the Llorona, the Weeping Lady. It's a legend in Mexico, but it seems to be just a little bit more than that. Because many people have uh, said that they've heard and even seen this ghost, this phantasm. As I kept listening... And looking outside, I heard it even louder. And I knew about where this was taking place because I knew the area over there. And as soon as I heard it, I knew that it was a very, very ominous phantasmal whale. I sat up and I'm thinking, you know, I don't wanna be here by myself in this room. So I got up and I ran to my parents' room. And of course, they had their door open also. Of course, it had a screen door and windows. And I told my my dad, I said, Dad, I hear the yorona." And I jumped in between mom and dad, you know, as an 8 year old kid. I jumped in between there and my dad woke up and he says, oh yeah, I hear it too. And I covered my ears because I didn't want to hear it anymore. My dad kept listening. He says, it sounds like it's moving, going away. And it was, it was traveling, what it's what seemed to be down the creek after a while it started to die down you could and then that's when i started listening again and i could barely hear it but i felt pretty secure between my mom and dad and then little by little it started dying down and then we couldn't hear it anymore we got up my mom wanted to go get a glass of water in the kitchen so as We started walking in the dark to the kitchen. I see this white ghost and it was walking away from us. And it seemed to me like it was a young woman with a shawl over her head and a dress all the way down to the floor. And it was kind of like floating away from us in the house. And I said, Mom, what is that? And she flipped on the light and it was gone.
4: Solo él, Espíritu, conoce.
0: is up in the back of your neck. That's them. Well, that's what the kid from The Sixth Sense said, anyway. And that definitely does it to me. John Mutchler from The Golden Roses, he came in and was on the show and um, told a pretty interesting story about his songwriting process uh, that included an Irish blessing and how how he kind of thought about that and inspired a song.
1: Well, the Irish blessing which I thought was very appropriate for this episode uh, and it actually is going to be on the new album. Um, we were about to do a run and I had everybody's money from the White Horse gig the previous week. And so I'd given everybody there. It was, you know, like $350, 400 bucks. And my bass player, who's a very interesting guy um, and likes to carry a weapon with him wherever he goes, uh, <laughs> he looked at the money and, and Tony looked at him and said, what are, you, what are you worried about, Troy? And he goes, I don't know if I feel good about carrying this much money out on the road with me. And he goes, well, you've got, you've, you've got a, a pistol on you. And he goes, yeah. And he looks up and he goes, 70 rounds ought to get us out of any sticky situation. And we thought it was so absurd. I'm not a gun guy. Let me just put that out there. I'm not a gun guy. I think 70 rounds is a lot. And so we told this story to uh, Tony's wife, Angie uh, and her and her father had come to see us. We were playing in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Mercury Lounge and they couldn't they couldn't stop laughing about it. And so she came up to me and she goes, you know, being out on the road and like getting yourself out of a sticky situation, it's like, it's kind of like an Irish blessing. And I was, I didn't know what that was. I faked like I knew what it was. So then I, of course I Googled it and I saw that phrase, you know, let may the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back. And so I wrote a song. Leaving town while leaving's good, we gotta be on our way Big city or a small town, either way we're gonna play Through the pouring rains and the hurricanes and maybe a bit of snow but We don't stop till the hammer drops cause we're always on the go May the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back And traffic on through Houston, well it might not be so bad Keep the coffee strong as it dries along and I hope we don't break down Say an Irish blessing before we leave town Me and Sean, we've seen the world from all kinds of automobiles A tour bus, pickup truck, and a death box on four wheels As Life is rough, but it's good enough for this here old soul of mine we'll Keep between them ditches so we make it home alive Oh, let's make it home alive May the road rise up to meet you and luck be at your back the Traffic going through Lockhart, well you know it ain't so bad Keep the coffee strong as it dries along and I pray we don't break down Say an Irish blessing before we leave town Everyone in the van, wheels are up at nine We got seven little old hours till we're on that Tulsa time We may not find any trouble, we might find some confrontations Seventy rounds ought to get us out of any sticky situation Up to meet you and luck be at your back. And traffic going through Dallas, well, you know it's always bad. Keep the coffee strong as it dries along, and I hope we don't break down. Say an Irish blessing before we leave town. Just say an Irish blessing Before
0: we leave this town Kay Gorley came in on that same episode Which was episode 11 Which was our St. Patrick's Day episode And uh, she came in to talk about Her relationship to the Irish music scene And her late husband Frank Who managed legendary acts Like Thin Lizzy and the Pogues In this particular episode clip she talks about uh, Frank's relationship with Shane McGowan, which uh, who we've of course lost this last year.
5: Frank would do um, things like he and uh, Shane would read poetry, Irish literature. Shane McGowan is a prolific reader. Um, he's an, an incredible artist. A lot of people don't know that about Shane McGowan and so Shane took a lot of those works and the books and poems that he read and created their songs. And it was, you know, they were at the right place at the right time. It was, you know, punk rock, but with that kind of Irish shanty, you know, you know. No wonder why Johnny Depp is wanted to be a pirate. Johnny, Johnny and Shane are really good friends.
0: I can imagine.
5: Oh yeah, <laughs> they're really good friends. Uh, the, the
0: thing I love about the Pogues and, and a lot of Irish music is is the literary aspect of it. It's got that a bit of history and a bit of color of the um, of the place in it. So. What I like about the Pogues is it reminds me, in a, in a certain way, of an artist Hemingway type of approach. Where, like, they put you in there. Does
5: that make sense? Absolutely. I, I, that, was, that, was, that was exactly what Frank wanted. You know, Frank was a creator in that way. And so, you know, Frank would get an idea and he would go for that idea. Um, you know, the Pogues never really, in every band, there's always a leader in the band. Uh, with the Pogues, there was never really one leader. You know, Frank was giving them a lot of direction. I know James Fernie, who was the drummer, um, had a lot of say, too, as well. You know, you had Spider, Stacy. You know, it was a very, I don't know, democratic kind of voting power, the way that band worked. So, and they would tour, and sometimes Shane wouldn't show up. Um, There was a tour that they did with Bob Dylan and Shane didn't show up. He just decided he wasn't going to show up. So, you know, it was there was always there was always that struggle with Frank to make sure Shane was where he needed to be.
6: You're good.
0: Just looking at you, Shane, and thinking about you. On episode nine, we were fortunate enough to have James McMurtry come in and visit with us in a fascinating conversation. So you've been out here about five years in Lockhart. How, how's, how have you found
7: it? I like it just fine, because we've got all these young people that got run out of Austin like us, and they're down here opening businesses and restaurants and bars, and it's, it's turned into a cool little village. Uh, I remember one of the first times I was here, I was in the Caracara Brewery and I had my weird little hat on that I wear, and kind of an English driving cap. And, and these two old guys walked up and they walked past me and one of them looks at the other and says, Lockhart's changed, you know? <laughs> and, and it has, and, and to my opinion, it's changed for the better. I mean, we still have, you know, there's still cotton fields right up to the edge of town and it, it's still ag-based economy, but, um, But the local, I mean, the people that were here before, most of them seem to tolerate us pretty well. And as they should, because they have a a solvent town. (laughs) And, you know, the the businesses around the square aren't boarded up like they were back before. They didn't issue liquor licenses. One of the cool things about Lockhart is it's not on the way to anywhere. So it's not exploding like Bastrop. And it's not really picturesque, like you know, in the hill country. You know, the Austinites like to go west, out in the hill country, where they got a view. We're on this flat plateau, which is suitable for farming. You know, it's not—it's not that great to look at. You go, in, you know, ten miles in any direction, it starts to break up a little bit, and you fall off towards the rivers. But, but uh, the, the flatness kind of. Slows the growth, and I don't mind that at all. I don't mind flat. I like sky.
0: Thinking about writing, does landscape, I mean, is always in your work. Is it something that you come back to naturally? or? T- oh,
7: well, it's just something you see that you write through. And so, yeah, I guess it gets in there no matter where you are. But, I mean, my, a lot of my songs are, are written through the windshield in various places where I haven't lived. But, you know, you pick up details along the road. And yeah, Choctaw Chalk, Bingo was really a writing exercise to see if I could put all that weird stuff I saw along Highway 69 in Oklahoma into one song.
0: And you write characters in your songs. They're like little films almost. You know, you can you put you right there until you can see it and be, <laughs> yeah, a, be a character.
7: it's fiction writing. That's, I mean, that's just an easier way to get into the song. I, th- I think one has a lot, you got a lot better chance of writing a song if you don't limit yourself to your own point of view. Yes. Yeah, if I had to just write autobiography, I wouldn't write much. But of course, you know, I grew up listening to the sound of a manual typewriter down the hall because Larry was down there making people up too. My father tells a story because, you know, in his household growing up, nobody read for pleasure. They read for information strictly. And one of his mother's sisters came in and she started talking about Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontail. And he's like, well, who are these people? She's like, well, they're not people, they're rabbits. What do you mean they're rabbits? Well, they're not real rabbits. They're made-up rabbits. What do you mean made-up real? You know, he didn't understand at that point that you could make some. You could make up a character. He was probably you know six, eight years old before he, before he knew that, and that changed his whole world. It is a happy story.
8: Looking back down the road from a little ways out I never had a fear and I never had a doubt If I'd had a lick of sense, I'd have figured that out pretty fast But I wasn't any smarter than the average kid Somebody might have noticed, but I never did I never saw the future fading right into the past Talking to the wallpaper, wandering the halls I burned a lot of bridges and I dropped a lot of balls It's a wonder I can never go back to any place I've been But I wouldn't get down on my knees on a bet I'm near enough to Jesus as I ever want to get Seeking salvation isn't part of my general plan Save your prayers for yourself Raise my glass to your health I don't mind if you don't look like me I can share my bread and wine. I come from another time. It don't matter all that much if it don't bleed. it don't bleed. Now it's all I can do just to get out of bed. There's more in the mirror than there is up ahead. A smile and a nod like I heard what you said every time. So run another rack for another shot You don't get it back So give it all you got While well, you still got A more or less Functional body in mind Save your prayers For yourself Raise my glass To your health I don't mind If you don't look like me I can share my bread and wine I come from another time It don't matter all that much If it don't bleed they don't bleed I learned to answer my calls And open my mail I paid my taxes And I stayed out of jail You stay in the game When you're too broke to fail That's a fact Talking to the wallpaper, sleeping in the hall. Your bones get brittle, so you better not fall. You're slow to a crawl, and time gets to in a jack. Run you right off the track. Save your prayers for yourself. Raise my glass to your health. I don't mind if you don't talk like me. I can share my bread and wine I come from another time It don't matter all that much If it don't bleed If it don't bleed If it don't bleed If it don't bleed If it don't
0: The band Jane Leo came on that same episode to uh, talk about their influences and play a song. They um, talked about their influences about how the 1980s and the sounds of the 1980s influenced their work.
9: We were doing, as we were saying, we were doing a KUTX thing yesterday and they had us make a playlist. And, you know, we've been done with the first album for maybe two years, you know, because we started writing it five years ago and we started working with Danny Reich right down the block from here uh, around four years ago and we had to dig back and figure out what were we listening to you know and this is like pre-pandemic during pandemic it's it was really crazy about two years in seclusion is where your where our interests fell we had in retrospect barely known each other at the time we knew each other for a year and then we had two years together of amazing like togetherness and without any you know literally in a bubble without any outside influence and it was like well what do you know and what do you know and it was really a powerful thing to reach back into albums of the cars and talking heads and stuff that it's funny because I'm a 80s kid but I completely rejected that sound growing up because you know being eight or ten or whatever it was in the 80s that was kind of what your parents listened to you know it's like absolutely not I don't want anything to do with this I want what's new and then now that I'm getting up there in the years, looking back and saying, wow, that stuff was was so powerful, so exciting. And then, you know, to show Jane and Jane react super positively and give it right back was.
10: I've, I've, you know, grown up with music my whole life. I've been a musician my whole life, but there was so much that I had not discovered. Um, Even after like going and majoring in music, there was so much that I had never wrapped my mind around. So meeting him was like, like, it, and it still is. And he's like an encyclopedia of artists that I've never heard of. And um, every time we kind of go down the path of listening to one of them, new songs come out. And so, yeah, you're you're dead on with what we were listening to around that time and the inclusion of synths and 808s. And it was something very True. different for both of us from our previous projects to start incorporating into our, our writing. And um, for me, vocally, like listening to people like Karen O was just like, whoa, this is, this is something I need to embrace um so I had to kind of learn how to unsing and take away my training in order to uh settle into a sound that worked for us so um it was a long-winded answer to your question no no it's
0: it's it's fascinating too so um the projects that you were doing before what what type of thing was that I'm just curious because I know you were doing two separate things and then this is very different can you talk a little bit about that
10: sure for for me uh, under my uh, Project Jane Ellen Bryant my full name I was doing kind of a folk rock singer songwriter Americana thing but I was also exploring a lot within that which was a bit confusing trying to do these like really harsh pop rock sounds and then also like folk tunes under one name it was not really making sense and then for Leopold and Fiction it was pure rock um, and so by meeting each other we got to kind of ex- ex- explore sounds that we wouldn't that didn't really make sense under our previous umbrellas. So uh, even like writing from different perspectives and just taking on these new characters and stepping outside of ourselves was really an awesome opportunity.
0: Lockhart itself can influence people's art, as I've learned by doing the show and hearing many different fascinating stories. One was my friend Scott Davis. On episode four, Scott and I do a project called Brothers of Mercy, and we were in on the show talking about our music, and he was telling me about, this, about the influences that Lockhart had on his songs, about living here when we first moved out here together. We were roommates, and um, Locker was very uh, quiet, and he um, was reminiscing about that and how a couple of things about the town showed up in the songs.
11: Yeah, fifteen years ago, there was nothing going on. I mean, the square was probably more empty buildings than than occupied. And there were there were a couple of restaurants, uh, and there were uh, there were two bars. I remember. There was uh, Lilies, which had tinfoil on the windows, uh, really good cheeseburgers, and cheap Lone Star, and nothing but Tejano on the jukebox, and it was awesome. And there was one other bar, and I can't remember the name of it. I do, I do remember the bartender there because I. I did put her into a song. She was uh, she was really really grumpy. I don't think she liked anybody. (laughs) She certainly didn't like us. No, (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know there was there was nothing else going on out here, and there was nobody else here. So I remember I was like, well, maybe I can talk her into liking me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We just (laughs) got (laughs) to town. That that never never came to be. Um, The woman I ended up dating and then marrying when I did live out here she used to call this place the land of no consequence because you could literally do anything and nobody would notice there were a bunch of abandoned old houses people were just starting to fix up these places like yours I think but it was it was quiet you know I, I was touring a lot at the time and so coming home was nice because I didn't I there's there nothing to distract me or bother me you had the studio downstairs and A balcony upstairs and i read a lot of books probably drank way too much yeah it was like the i used to call it the pirate ship yes yeah that that's a good good thing to call it i mean when stephen first moved into this house the downstairs looked like a brothel uh just dark red paint on the walls and velvet couch velvet tapestries and little like candle wall sconces and Looked like you were in the French Quarter in, you know, 1920, and it was, you know, it was home. We loved it. It certainly inspired a lot of uh, a lot of good music to be made.
12: One day, I'll convince myself that I should ask for more Until then, I guess I'm not too sure It reminds me of my failures like Horatio's arm Lost on the day he was defeated And I know that someday soon my greatest victory will come This could be exactly what I needed have to look too far Cause I think Annie's watching me in the mirror behind the bar I've
6: never seen her smile and
12: she's got eyes as black as tar Let me one more drink, I might forget just where we are. She reminds me of my failures like Horatio's arm. Lost on the day he was defeated. And I know that someday soon my greatest victory will come. This could be exactly what I needed. He was defeated. And I know that someday soon my.
0: Episode 13 had Kevin Russell from Shiny Ribs on, and it was a really entertaining interview. Check this out.
13: I started Shiny Ribs in 2007, seven, eight. So uh, you've been working a lot since then. Yeah, and I was writing? doing it while I was still doing the Gourds. And then it was just a four-piece. It was keyboards, bass, and drums. And uh, I was still kind of doing a Kevin Russell kind of Gourds thing. I was just doing what I normally did, but just it was all me. And then it wasn't until I played a, a wedding and the groom wanted me to hire horns. And uh, he's like, why don't, you, why don't you get a horn section? I want you to sing all. He had a list of songs and he wanted to sing one of the songs. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> but he was right. He's like, He was a fan. He just said, he said I think you should have horns. And so I found these horn players through Uncle Lucius, mm-hmm. uh, the Tijuana Trainwreck Horns, Mark Wilson, Tiger, and I. Uh, they were playing with Uncle Lucius during a South by, and I was looking for horns for this wedding, and I asked them if they'd be into it, and they were like, sure, man. And uh, from that first rehearsal, I was like, oh my god. It's amazing. Because I love all the New Orleans R&B stuff, and I realized, oh, this is a whole side of me I could explore. You know, I, I wondered, could I afford a six-piece band? Because we weren't making a lot of money at the time. And, I was, and my my hunch was, I think it'll make us better, and we will make more. It'll pay for itself, and that and that was the case. And now it's a big band, right? Yeah, yeah. I I added two uh, backup singers. Same deal. And uh, about eight years ago, actually, on Valentine's, we played Green Hall, yeah. and uh, I I needed some harmony singers to do all these love songs I wanted to do that night for a thematic Valentine's show, and so I hired um, Alice Spencer, who's still with me. And uh, Sally Allen was the other original shiny soul sister. I didn't have a name for him. I wanted, obviously, to call them the Riblets. That's what they should be called. But I realized there's probably no woman in the world who would want to be called a Riblet and sing. I mean, that's not. I mean, I said, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah there's the rayettes isn't that it for- the rayettes no Rayettes. the, the Rayettes,
0: the the yeah yeah this is the riblets no the riblets no i'm not doing i can see that
13: yeah yeah I you did. know what i mean yeah so I that did. was my thinking anyway that's really what they should have been called but i didn't think <laughs> i could get away with it but so i just <laughs> off the cuff i called them shiny soul sisters one night that's cool yeah and uh that stuck <laughs>
14: pum <tose>
0: same episode episode 13 the electrician was in on the show and during the interview he had some woody things to say about several things one of them being a lighter take on mass extinction
15: that song i kind of i tend to joke when i'm playing that live that 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 song is a, a lighter <clears throat> a lighter take on mass extinction um which uh which is kind of how I, I feel about the world right now is that, um, uh, and I guess there's the hopefulness or positivity is that even in even in the idea of of quite literally a mass extinction possibly happening, which I understand is a it's a long you know in geologic terms it, it probably will be past my lifetime, but I think as humans we're seeing the possibility of it occurring in the next couple hundred years, which is pretty pretty quick you know. When you think about it, and uh, and so you know within that song, kind of thinking about all of the things. I was out backpacking with my wife's family, and they're like hardcore survivalist, you know, primitive backpackers, and have been forever. And I was not raised that way. I did, I never, we never even went camping. So over the years, I've had to like kind of meet halfway. And now I do enjoy backpacking, but it is sometimes it's really an, it's a little too intense for me. But my kids grew up going backpacking, so we were on this backpacking trip, and we ran into this geologist on the trail, and he was telling me um, we were in this eastern part of the Sierra Nevada mountains in California, I think in the Inyo uh, National Park or Inyo State Park, and um, you know when you're looking at the mountains, you're walking through this kind of valley and you're looking at the mountains, and there's a whole section where the granite or the you know the rock is all gray, and then there's a whole section where it was red, and he was telling us. All about, like, one meant that it had been underwater, like it had been under the ocean at some point when the ocean was here. And, you know, I thought, like, oh, wow, that's so, so incredible. And I was so wowed by it. But the way my brain works and just how uh, flighty and daydreamy I am is that 10 minutes later, I had no idea. I couldn't remember which was which. I was like, well, one of them is, dang it, now I can't. <laughs> Now I can't remember, but I thought it was such a neat. One of these is important, <laughs> right? Exactly, and and you know we th- it, you can think of it it maybe as escapism. But when things are going so crazy in the world around us and and so rough, it is helpful to me to step back and go. Well, I mean that was all underwater at one point, you know, or when the trees burn down in a in a forest in California or in Australia, that's terrible for humans. But it's really good for the trees. And there's this huge you know, uh, ecosystem of roots and, and mycelia and all this stuff that's under the ground that is actually you know, getting a lot of great stuff from the ashes. And, and, and eventually we're going to be gone. And that's going to be really great for everything else on
0: Earth. We'll be right back.
16: Hey folks, Emily here from Wella, a local family-owned business right here in Lockhart, Texas. We make everyday foods you love, like Thunderbird Superfood, Energy Bars, and our Wella Hot Cereal and more, with only clean ingredients and amazing flavors. You can find us at HEB, Central Market, Whole Foods, Good Things on the Lockhart Square, as well as ThunderbirdBar.com, Wellafoods.com, and Amazon.
0: Episode thirteen also had Melissa Carper on the show and she performed and she was uh talking about one of her songs that has a pretty great story.
17: Yeah, Boxers is an old one. That's that's uh um I didn't think I'd be putting that on the Ramblin' Soul album. I gave the producers like a bunch of demos of possible songs and they're like, Well, we at least have to record that one. They're like, That's that's a good one. We could make we you know and I was kind of already tired of the song because I'd played it for so many years and it are, and it only has two chords. <laughs> but um, uh, it's just been something that people always enjoy. So I'm glad I put it on the album. But yeah, I wrote that um, uh, pretty much right when I first moved to Austin in 2009. Um, I was coming out of a relationship and I just wasn't feeling very good about myself. And so I kind of knew that... that I wasn't going to be getting lucky. <laughs> and uh, actually, I, you know, that was completely autobiographical because I I uh, realized I had my boxers on backwards. And I was like, oh, got my boxers on back- backwards. Well, it just doesn't matter because I ain't getting lucky tonight. And then that was the beginning of that song. Yeah, a lot of people relate to it, you know. And uh, my partner, Rebecca, had the idea of she thought it would make a great video if. Our friend Devin Jake was to choreograph a line dance for the song. So I asked him if he'd be interested in that and he he did it. He, he um, choreographed a, a great line dance and then he taught it to a few folks and we made a video I with the dance. So. got my boxer's on back, just just man. I ain't getting lucky tonight. Got my boxer's on back, just
0: One of my favorite aspects of doing the show is is the stories that people tell. Bear Ryan was on episode 22, and she played a song that she had written about her grandfather who would take in children um, if they didn't have a home. And if they needed shoes, he'd take him down to the funeral home and get the shoes off the corpse from The Undertaker. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's that, that's... That's some, that's some deepness right there. And
18: then the first song I played, uh, uh, Dead Man's Shoes, is about um, a person struggling with mental health because they have like psychic abilities and they're kind of button heads with religious dogma. But there is a shout-out in that song to my grandfather. He was an Irish immigrant and um, raised 14 children by himself because my grandmother passed away. And uh, then he adopted his two nephews, so he raised 16 kids by himself. Legend has it that he went to the local um, Irish funerals to get the dead man's shoes for his kids, for the boys. I found out that it's a true story. I played the song for my cousin, who's about 20 years older than me, and she was crying, and she said, it's true. She said he was going blind, and I would have to drive him to the funeral parlor, and he was friends with the the funeral guy, and he would give my grandfather, Anthony Walsh, the dead man's shoes for his sons. So there's a shout-out to him in there. It's crazy, it's crazy right it's a different time <laughs> I was like that's hey grandpa that was a pretty rock and roll yeah man that's, <laughs> that's,
0: that's deep man. yeah it's very deep yeah, man. and he was
18: a a poet and performer so the whole songs kind of even uh, up until the
0: end he's like I'm gonna drive you down
18: yeah
0: <laughs> and I'm gonna give you the dead man's shoes exactly <laughs>
6: <laughs> yep
0: Episode 4 had Hallianna come in and perform for us, as well as uh, we talked about her new songs. One of them that she performed was called Bomberay, and she talks to us about the uh, inspiration of going out to West Texas to the famous pool there and um, focusing on the simple things. What's your writing process like? Because I've worked with Dustin, and we kind of... We've thrown curveballs at each other with the writing process.
19: Well, I really, first I sit down and I open up my notebook. And it seems like the songs that I get out, such as uh, Balmeray, which we'll play later, um, that's a sit down and one sitting and get it done kind of song. And that's been kind of my approach. It's like, if it's good and I can get through writing it, And usually these songs are all based on experience, a lot of true stories, a lot of broken hearts. Um, And I just try to get in the movement and get it done. The people that I co-write with, it's pretty limited. I know Dustin and I have different processes, definitely. And I am so proud of what he does. And I always ask him first about my songs. And he's really a good person to bounce the ball back and forth on.
0: So talk to me a little bit about this song, uh, Balmeray. You said it's one that was just kind of written in one sitting kind of thing.
19: Absolutely. Um, I don't know if this should be on the record or not, but there is this Amy Winehouse song called Valerie a long time ago. And everybody listening to this very exclusive podcast is going to know that I owe Amy Winehouse for my Balmoré because I thought she was saying Balmoré. West Texas is a really important aspect of my childhood and my father's life. He embodied trilingua, chili cook-offs. He was also a huge fan of Hondo Crouch and Luckenbach. And so for me in my adult life, I um, got to go to Big Bend National Park with a geography class. And my study was writing about the desert and I got some college credit for that. Thank you so much to my professor, Susan Hansen, and Dr. Peterson, who took us out there. We had a great time. It was such an amazing experience. And I had never, ever known about Balmeray State Park, which is the most beautiful, like, ray of sunshine, body of water when you leave the desert. It's so magical there. There are literally tadpoles that will, like, nibble on your feet. And it's the bluest bluest water. It's probably the best body of water in Texas, if you ask me. And I'm a San Marcos River girl.
0: Episode 10 had Jen Hodges come in and play for us. And she talked about how she got into country and western music, and how it started as a little girl, um, with experiences going to Garner State Park at the dances they would have out there. I remember one time I heard you say that um as a as a little girl, you had you had heard country and western music, and then all of a sudden it was it kind of just became I, I don't want to say an obsession, but <laughs> but definitely a trail to go down.
16: Yeah, obsession is actually a word that I do, that I like to use because I just dove in headfirst after um, listening to old country records as a child at uh, Garner State Park, where they have a big two step dance every night. My family went camping there every year. And I associated these old 50s and 60s country songs with that place and just having fun in the summertime. And, um, we didn't really listen to those records at home, but later in college, I found all those records and um, read a few history books on country music history, and uh, that's how I got really into country music. People were kind of passing around, you know, CDs and uh, playlists and things, and I just really latched on to the old, you know, Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline because it reminded me of being a kid at Garner State Park. So then I just kind of started on this trail, started with 60s country music and then led to bluegrass and old time as well.
0: Do do they still have those events at Garner?
16: I think so. I think they still have it every uh, Friday and Saturday night.
0: It's like a dance thing? It's a
16: dance that's in the pavilion there. They call it a pavilion. It's like an open air patio attached to the old, you know, those, those cool old lodges that were built in the 30s by the CCC. There's a jukebox there, and it's been the same jukebox like since my dad was a kid. And my dad actually taught me how to two step there. So it's a special place for my family.
20: Well, I wonder how are at home, I wonder if they miss me when I'm gone, I wonder if they pray for the boy who went away and left his dear old parents all alone, you can't hear the cattle lowing in the lane, you can almost see the fields of bluegrass green. You can almost hear them cry as they kiss the kids bark by. Oh, I wonder how the old folks are at home. Just a village and a homestead on a farm. And a mother's love shields you from all harm. A mother's love so true and a boy who loved her too. Just a village and a homestead on a farm. You can hear the cattle lowing in the lane. You can almost see the fields of bluegrass green. You can almost hear them cry As they kiss the boy by Oh, I wonder how the old folks are at home You can't hear the cattle See the fields of bluegrass green You can almost hear them cry As they kiss the bark by Oh, I wonder how the old folks are at home Yeah, I wonder how the old folks are at home
0: Having artists in addition to musicians on the show is really made it fascinating to see all of the types of uh, creative things that are happening in Lockhart. Um... Rawatash uh, is one such artist that was uh, doing a, an exhibit out here, and he came on the show to talk about many different things, one of which is a technique that he uses to make a music video that's hand-painted.
21: There's one thing in, in my part of the show that is technology positive, which is a couple of years ago a band reached out to me and said, we want to do a music video, and this is during um, the height of the pandemic and all that. And I go, well, look... Um, I'm going to try to find an idea that I can do alone in my studio because I don't want to be around people. I don't, you know, I just, I want to do something I can do completely solo. Um, I go, and I've had this idea for a long time. I want to, I want to hand paint a music video and I've never done this before. And uh, obviously I love painting and I love music videos and I love animation. So I'm, I'm going to combine all this into making a hand painted music video and I got to do it. They had basically no money. Um, and also, I got to do it in my studio, which is a tiny little space in Austin. So, I've no money. Um, I, I want to hand. I want to do something where I can do by myself. And I've got basically an iPhone. Great! I'm going to hand paint an entire music video on one piece of wood. It's about like I don't know, like 20 inches wide, maybe 18 inches wide. I got a mount for my camera, for my phone, to put over the painting, like a camera, where my camera could look down on it. And frame by frame, I painted the entire music video. It's a Pink Floyd cover. The song is called Fearless. It's a six-minute song, which I didn't even realize until I was like like a third way through. I'm like, what, what have I done? It took seven months to make. It's 3,771 paintings on one piece of wood. Um, and so that painting is on the wall at the show, and there's a QR code below it, so you could watch the YouTube link if you want. This video, because of the amount of attention you have to have, because you can't mess up in a hand-painted animation. Like I can't go back a frame and fix it, you know, or, or whatever. There's no Photoshop. I can't, this, it, it It is what it is. So you have to be so zero focused because of which it was like pure meditation. And I was just so into that painting and every frame I was like, so inside of it that I really don't, I didn't feel the weight of my body. I, I didn't notice the weather. I didn't, I didn't notice time. I definitely didn't eat as much as I should have. It was the weirdest I watched the video now and I don't know who did it because I don't feel like I, I was not operating my arms and my hand and my, my it was just something I was I was floating, you know, while this video was being made and I just feel like I watched it. So it was a very powerful experience. And um uh but again it I took what I didn't have. I had no money, I had I couldn't go outside, I wanna be around people. Um and you know, uh And had really no space, so I had to make something with with nothing. And I think that's, again, back to that shark thing. I think about that all the time. Like, how do you lean into the pain, if you will, and use what you don't have to your advantage?
0: Episode 26 had Tomar Williams of Tomar and the FCs come on the show. He was going to be playing the Barbecue Fest. And really fascinating conversation about uh, working in the hip-hop industry.
14: Then we got signed to Universal in 2005, and that's when the floodgates opened up, man. You know, I'm talking about Jay-Z, Beyonce, everybody wanted to work with us. MIA. We did some songs with MIA. One day we were in a studio session and we got a call from my man over at Universal, Manny Edwards. He was like, Hey man, I got a finished Shakur on online and she wants to rap with you guys about something. I'm like, You talking about Tupac's mom? I'm like,
22: yeah, yeah, yeah.
14: So we, you know, brought her in and she was like, hey, uh, I'm just admiring what you guys do as producers. And uh, hey, you know, I was wondering if you guys would be willing to work on my son's new project that I'm putting together for him. And we were like, What? <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. You ain't gotta ask. You just call and say, Hey, you show up, you know. So it was cool, man, because um and she was really sweet, man, and um the late Athena Shakur. She was like, instead of you guys flying all the way here to uh Los Angeles I want you guys to be comfortable in your in your own setting so she said i would fly my crew down there so we had a studio here in austin and we had a record store a vintage record store in luling texas it's called carnival records so the name of our production company was carnival beats so we had a carnival record store in Luling, Texas, of all places. Yeah. But it was really cool, man, because we had, like, all these vintage records. I mean, we sold any and everything, you know, vinyl. And that was
0: your record store? It
14: was my brother, Salih. Oh, well, it, it was our family record store. My dad, and we all worked it. And um, so it was, it was our record store, family-owned. We were, like, real close to the cafe and the donut shop. Okay. And um so what, ha- <laughs> what happened, when we got to the studio, word got out, I'm not sure I think some of our artists said that the Tupac people are coming down and people were all hanging out in the parking lot before we even started the session. I'm like, oh man, this is going to be crazy. We decided not to record in Austin because there was just so much going on. There's like a lot of people just hanging out and we were like, you know what? Let's 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 move the session to Lulon. So we came all the way to Lulon. We had a studio in the back of the store, of the record store. And Man, it, it was magic. It was magic, man. And so when the engineer plugs in the hard, the hard drive and he start playing all these acapellas from Tupac, we listened to like about 200 songs, man. And I'm not joking, man. All you heard was just Tupac breathing on the microphone, just, and he just coming. And he just, and i like, man, this is so crazy. You yeah. know, it's like he was in the room with this right. man. Yeah, I get goosebumps talking about it. But um. We ultimately worked on that album. It's called Pox Life, and um, we did track number five, so it's called What's Next.
0: The songwriter Gus Clark came on the show on episode twenty, and had a pretty interesting thing to say about folk music and what it is and what his thoughts are on it, how it informs his writing. Um, here's a bit of that now.
23: For me, I think there was a cool thing that happened in American history in the, mostly in the. 50s outside well even within the realm of pop but like from the 40s through the 60s of like you had this confluence of this really raw folk music being refined enough to be packaged as what was pop music I mean it was it was meant to be popular they were trying to sell records and, and I think that there was a really cool magic point where you could package something as a ostensibly little sort of dance song little two and a half minute radio single dance song and get away with saying something really intense about the human experience in the simplest way possible. You know, I think that there's there was a place where you're taking the musical traditions of what we call, you know, hillbilly music or blues music or whatever and refining it enough thanks to the nature of studio equipment getting better and things like that. I don't know, there's just like a really sweet spot there where where they were, where, you know, you watch the old videos and it's like they still call Webb Pierce a folk singer, but that was pop country of 1956, you know? That was put on the rhinestone suit, smile big and get on TV, you know? But they were still able to express something really sincere about humanity and and, and even some of the songwriters I see now that I really like their writing, I find myself not walking away with something catchy. So, you know, I, I think I like that little bit of pop sensibility to my. To my folk music to my to my songwriter music you know I want it to still yeah I've always felt that way too where you have like there's the, the hook. I think some you know people that are doing it really well now are like Corb Lund, Jim Lauderdale, people like that that where they're really quite clever and packaging it in a way that you still and by I say packaging I don't mean marketing. I mean packaging the music I mean the finished product of the song you still walk away with a chorus. You still walk away with a hook or something in your head, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, that was very popular for a very long time. And that was sort of the standard of what songwriters were trying to do is be unique but also have a hook that was unique and find something that resonated. What Where do you think that went? Well,
23: I think that some of that you know, like anything, you get a copy of a copy. You know, I think you had people having success with that that were really sincere. Like, again, I'll say George Jones, you know. But, like, you, they started trying to... You had record industry people getting in the way. You had people trying to say, oh, if that song worked, let's write three more songs that sound just like that that say the same thing and see if we can get a hit with those. And it was about making hits and not about songwriting and so then you have what we call the outlaw movement now which doesn't have anything to do with doing outlaw quote unquote stuff but was just a response to the music industry it said forget the pop forget packaging as a pop song forget you know not forget tradition but do it your own way and I think that spawned a whole really cool generation of specifically Texas songwriters where it really embraced being yourself you know that's where you get your your Willis Allen Ramses, your Terry Allens, your Gary P Nuns—you know these people. It's like, oh, you know, screw it, I'm gonna do it how I want to do it, and I think that's really cool too. I just think that for me, there's a there's a balancing point in there, and that's really so much of what writing is about—is trying to to distill things in a way that ultimately I want to like my songs, you know, like. It's not, it's not an entirely selfish endeavor, I want people to relate, I want people to be entertained. That's the job description, I don't just do it for myself. But but that's what music does for me. When I hear a good song, that takes a really complex part of the human experience and boils it down to a, a, a palatable... Uh... That's why we like cliches, that's why we like catchphrases, that's why we like dualities, that's why we like old sayings and, and little capsules of advice. It's, it's too freaking complicated otherwise, you know?
0: No, I hear you. I think that's, that's it's good to hear. Because folk music, you know, I guess it's in that term because it is of the people and vernacular in that way. But also, I feel like if it gets too polished or too... It loses that humanity. There's sort of a wisdom of sorts. I don't know. That's how I
23: feel. Yeah, about. I mean, that's why there's certain artists that I think you know, for my life thus far and probably for the rest of my life, I'll keep going back to when I feel awash in the decades of music and all that, then I'm like, just go listen to Jimmy Rogers. There's, to me, that's the balance. You've got technical ability as a musician. You've got fun, catchy, I'm an entertainer element paired with serious, heavy life stuff. And it's enjoyable to listen to. I mean, I don't know. I'm like, I always come back to, yeah, I come back to people like Jimmy Rogers. I come back to Woody Guthrie. You know, I come back to, to some of those old blues guys, too. You know, I come back to Blind Willie McTell. Don't overthink it. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, good, it's good advice.
24: Four centuries, it was all just land. Divided up by mountains, rivers, and sand. Showed up with a gun and a shovel, that's what started this new world trouble. Some gave in, some left at home, some stayed and fought, some died alone. Your face looks different from mine. From another place, from another time. If you weren't here, we'd all be fine. bomb born, like cattle, nowhere to go. Put up your fences so you can't see what it looks like to live like me. Run me out of another town. I just keep walking, can't bring me down Your face looks different from mine From another place, from another time If you weren't here My head on sacred ground. But you swear I'm heathen, not heaven.
6: If you listen
24: close, you can hear the sound of ancestors gathered by. Your face looks different from mine. Another place From another time. If you weren't here, we'd all be fine. But you made the room, you crossed the line. If you weren't here, we'd all be fine. you made the room, you crossed the line. The road, you cross the line.
0: Having fictional characters on the show has been a lot of fun, and um, we bring those to life through contributors. And one contributor is Jason Williams, who is well known for his work in Greater Tuna, a series of plays that he wrote. And it's just been a real pleasure to be able to work with someone like him. And um, we had him on the show to interview him about his career. And this is a pretty cool little anecdote he has to say about um, things that you weren't supposed to say.
25: Yeah, what I basically do uh, or did with my career, especially with the Greater Tuna shows, I just did everything my mother told me not to do as a child, not to do or say. And dressed up like her part of the time doing it. And uh, boy, it worked. <laughs> it worked. And we, when we wrote the first Tuna show, we thought we would be working maybe for at the most for six months. And well, we were, we toured for nearly 40 years.
0: Man, it's just it was a, something else. Yeah. It was a long,
25: yeah, it's a long time in high heels. It is a long <laughs> time in high heels. Yeah.
0: And um, where we brought in, Annalisa Hinterkleiden. Annalisa Hinterkleiden. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she has a food network. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
25: slap that chicken. Check a ch- chicken for freshness. You just walk up and slap the hell out of it. If it slaps you back, it's too fresh. <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, and that's been fun to see her come to life. Yeah, she's she's a case.
25: This is Annalisa Henter-Clyden bringing you this week's episode of Tricks in the Kitchen. This week's topic asks the question, Why did Julia Child have a personal beef with pounded round steak? For some chefs, those professional or simply at-home practitioners, the renowned French chef Julia Child is considered untouchable, and her words in regard to cuisine are never to be questioned. One such acolyte, the chef at Bruno's Bistro and Muscatel Bar in Burlingame, Vermont, viciously attacked an assistant in the kitchen for claiming that Miss Child's Bearnaise sauce tended to turn out lumpy. The chef, Bruno Putti, was so enraged over the callous comment regarding the woman he referred to as St. Julia that he filled a pastry bag full of overheated clam juice and squirted it on the hapless employee in an extremely sensitive area of the body. The emergency room personnel called it a -a once-in-a-career event. Bruno was convicted of assault with intention to harm using a dangerous culinary substance and sentenced to 50 hours community service that could not be performed within 100 feet of anything edible. My own personal bone to pick with Miss Child has a more local persona as she took it upon herself to poo-poo that Texas culinary staple known as chicken fried steak. We in Texas don't take lightly criticism of our favorite staple by someone who has to floss snail morsels out of her teeth on a regular basis. Texans fought and died in the front lines of France during two major wars, and one would have hoped that someone over there would have common courtesy to say thank you for the fact that sauerkraut isn't your go-to appetizer. This is Anna-Lisa staying tuned in next week for Tricks in the Kitchen when the subject will be the use of lunch as a weapon.
0: This next segment features two local artists from two separate shows talking about their work, Chris St. Ledger being one and Marie White being the other.
26: Commerce Gallery started with a phone call to me. Uh, Tamara and Donna Blair invited me down to the gallery and we uh, we first pitched it as um, the Christopher St. Ledger Gallery and I was like, absolutely not. No, I, I just I, lo- I took a look through... And the, the, the track lighting was all there. I was completely wowed, but I just never saw it in me to have my own, my own operation. So we moved on to the next idea, which was they would run a gallery and I would be the resident artist. And that's kind of what stuck. Hmm. Of course, I don't practice there anymore. I used to have a studio in the back, did that for about two years. And then I had to locate, relocate to my own home because it just absolutely felt Right, I needed, I needed to kind of go back out of um, the sort of semi-public eye, which is definitely what it was like to be there. I'd never done anything like that before, <laughs> except for when I started painting, which was entirely plain air. I used to, I used to paint you know, like on the sidewalks and out of the back of my Subaru. When I lived in Austin, when I first moved there, when I did watercolors uh, on location, and, and then I moved to Lockhart and right next door, actually, here to you, Steven. And I uh, had my first studio and went indoors at that point and never looked back. So when I moved to Commerce Gallery, you know, it was not a big shift. Actually, it was a, it was a it was an upgrade. It was a great space, a huge brick wall, pretty good lighting, a big roomy space, um, really enjoyed it. And a lot of people would come through and want to talk to me. And then it's just after a certain while, I think you just want to be private. People would come in, and um, you know, they'd want to. They'd want to know right away. What are you? What are you painting? And you know, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Like right? as I'm painting something, I'm not really quite sure, right? You're, you're, it's a process, and uh, and most of the time, there's there's no reason at all, and there's no good reason. Uh, so <laughs> you're painting to figure that out, and uh, and so I'd, it would become these kind of, you know, these little lectures or seminars on like. Uh, the uh, senselessness of being an artist, and, and I'm like. I, and by the way, I got to get back to work. So, can you excuse me? And that, after a while, that just I think I became a little bit more rude with people, and uh, it and just wasn't sustainable.
22: Once you get into a flow, yeah, and somebody interrupts you with a question, you're just that, like the yeah. flow yeah. Uh, it dissipates, right. gone. I have know, to turn off like, the music.
26: I'm like, excuse me. No. Yeah.
22: And so I I'm, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be by myself when I'm painting.
5: Just yeah, changing the, the actual side. space yeah. and the the feel of your day. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I just alone having to like be presentable. I mean, I'm yeah. most often painting in my pajamas. Haven't looked mm-hmm. in the mirror. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. So yeah. that alone would be too much for me to. Yeah. You know, too much of an interruption to have to think about what I looked like.
26: I mean, I'm, that I'm sitting here right now with Brian Phillips and Stella Lisi talking about our upcoming show at the Commerce Gallery, (laughs) Uh, where, you know, it's my bread and butter. I mean, I, that's my, Mm -hmm. that's my, those are my main people there. And uh, I would have never thought that, um, that my, my biggest, best gallery would be four blocks away.
6: Mm -hmm.
26: You know, I, for years tried working with different galleries in Austin, which didn't try. I did show with galleries in Austin and I enjoyed it. And they were, those were really good experiences, but uh, the energy that commerce gallery has just doesn't compare. Um, Tamara Carlisle totally brings it. She's uh, just got a lot of energy, a lot of creative vision and She's made the experience, not just for me, I know for everybody that's
22: been showing there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Caroline and Fred, everybody associated with the gallery. It's just like they go above and beyond to promote their artists, sell the work, and they go full out on it. And I've never worked with a gallery that was that good about everything. Like Mm -hmm. I've had galleries either sell a lot of my work but not promote it or promote the hell out of it and not. Did not sell, so I don't know, yeah, what kind of (laughs) mojo they found here, but it's definitely working for them, and I I love them for it.
19: Yeah, they do a great job.
22: Right, and it's the vibe is perfect. Yeah, like it's just not pretentious. It's it's good. It's camaraderie amongst artists, and I I think Tamra's you know cultivated a family of artists that love showing together, mm-hmm. love each other's work, love talking about our work and, and, and support each other. Right. And that's something that I think is just, it has to happen organically or they can't be pushed in my opinion. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love being a part of the gallery and, you know, I can't thank them enough for supporting my, right my vision, my work, you know, so. Thank you guys. And
19: it's such a beautiful space. So beautiful, right? Such a gorgeous building. The the space is just beautiful.
26: Yeah. I never even dreamt of, of all the things we talked about, Steven, we never said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have uh, a killer art gallery on the square? I don't think I I would have thought it would work.
0: No, I wouldn't have conceived Mm -hmm. that. Then I think the Spellerberg thing put, and I thought, well, that can work. That's a small space. And, you know, and then, but then I'm like you, I, I didn't think that a gallery would come that had such great work, you know? It, and it's hilarious. I mean, both of them it, do,
26: but. You mentioned that Marty Spellerberg's done a great job too. Um, but but like you said, when when he first came, uh, it was right around the time the Lockhart Bistro opened up as well and Spellerberg's space was opening and and a bunch of us thought it was just kind of a, uh, Marfa Prada kind of installation. We thought it was mm-hmm. someone putting up a fake art gallery. I'm like, That's impossible. This can't be real. No one's really doing a, a white wall space in downtown. <laughs> Lock, but
0: he's he's got his own. I think he had to and, kind of overcome that too a little bit. Like, no, I'm yeah. I'm actually doing this. Yeah, yeah. We were like, why? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had to like Good. get over our own cynicism. It was a very yeah. strange thing. I maybe it's a cynicism, but I feel like it was we had gotten boxed in our own thought, you know? And, sure. and I think one of the surprising things about having a lot of creativity coming to a, a small place is that it kind of wakes you up to what's possible again. And, and I've, I've, I've just been, I've really enjoyed that process yeah. of watching that happen
26: here. Well, so there's absolutely enough material for you to, to produce 78644, 4. I mean. <laughs> <laughs>
27: yeah, no, it's- so there's a show up right now at Commerce Gallery and um, there's four landscapes there. And one is based on a commission I did. And the other three are titled slide one, two, and three, which were slides my dad took. So my dad uh, has passed, but he was a um, amateur photographer and growing up. He constantly had a camera on him. He loved slides because of the vivid color. I think slides are nostalgic for everybody. There's something about them that's like the smell, uh, the noise of the slide projector. It's almost kind of a whole production on its own. It's a whole art piece. So when I was at Chicago at the School of the Art Institute, I had a, um, a performance class. And my performance piece was taking a bunch of my dad's slides and projecting them and me standing in them, I think is a way to connect to these images. Um, And yeah, they were all um, maybe even kind of Hopper-esque, kind of bleak landscapes, you know, a lonely road with some taillights. I think there was a beach and a farm and some of West Texas. I've just always come back to the slides throughout my life. Throughout my painting career, I've painted different things, like some sheep or a toy ducky from his work. Just using the slide as an image to connect to. I like removing myself as as the artist and the viewer, you know, kind of that idea of translating it through something else. Not just what I see, but something I've seen. And then it's just kind of a fun journey to be to be really staring at and and picking apart and dissecting an image and really be invested in an image that that I didn't see. You know that was that was what he saw, and it's um, just like a fun translation.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this look back on season one, and we're very much looking forward to season two. We'd like to thank. Wella Foods for their sponsorship and our in kind sponsors, Printing Solutions, Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, The Rock House Airbnb, Birdie House Airbnb, Gaslight Baker Theater, Crystal Glaze Photography. 78644 is produced by Kate Collins. It's recorded at Troubadour Image and Sound and it's edited by myself, Stephen Collins, with Danny Manning. Social media is managed by Crystal Glaze. Our show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else where podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening. Baby,
24: come back. I'm all alone and I'm blue without you.